Well, I am greatly encouraged by your singing. Every week it is a highlight for me to be able to sing with the saints. So thank you for doing that faithfully. And uh, for those of you that are visiting, I met uh, several new folks today. It's great to have you here. My name is Dominic. I am the lead pastor here. And uh, it's just a joy to have you join us for worship this morning. I do encourage you to fill out those uh, connection cards. We'd love to be able to do that and find out how we can minister to you and get you connected with the life of the church. If you are visiting with us uh, for the first time, you need to know that uh, typically on a normal Sunday, we're just working our way systematically through different texts. And um, there's just a season here where we're uh, looking at a number of Old Testament texts. And so the last several weeks, we were in the book of Job. This morning, we're turning our attention to the book of Proverbs in chapter 1. And you may have caught uh, just by the songs that we sang that there's a, a theme running here. You can see it also on your bulletin when you look at the title of the sermon. But our question this morning is all about the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord. So I want to begin there and ask you the question, are you a God-fearing person? Are you a God-fearing person this week? I saw a tweet um, came from Brother Mark Dever who posted something about a Christian in Tanzania. He woke up to a note on his door, and this is what the note said. Brother Sharif, you have a few days to live. This is your last warning. We hate to hear the news about Jesus and Christianity. Christianity is a false religion. Give up teaching people the Bible in Zanzibar. If you continue teaching and proclaiming about Christ, we will kill you. I imagine that's not a note that you would want to wake up to. I mean, imagine if your wife or one of your kids walks up to you in the morning during breakfast with that note and with those words. What do you think Brother Sharif did with that threat? Well, he went to the internet, he posted it, and he asked, he pleaded with people to pray, to pray for protection, to pray for wisdom. I mean, he is facing a serious temptation, and it's the temptation to fear man more than God. But what does Brother Sharif do? What do we do when we're confronted with threats, threats on our life? It is real easy to fall into the temptation to fearing what man can do, but he doesn't want that to dictate his decisions. And yet at the same time, we understand that he needs, that brother needs wisdom. What does he do? Does he stop preaching? Does he go somewhere else? Does he move? Does he flee? I don't know what the answer is. But what I do know is he needs wisdom. That that brother needs wisdom. So I've been praying for wisdom. You can pray for wisdom for Brother Sharif. When we think about wisdom, where does that start? Where does it begin? Where do we get it? Well, the book of Proverbs answers those questions. And what we learn from the book of Proverbs that wisdom really begins and ends with the fear of Yahweh. As we come to the book of Proverbs, you've got 31 amazing chapters that are filled with wisdom, but all of it really boils down to, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear Yahweh? The fear of Yahweh is really the banner over all wisdom literature. And so as we move from the book of Job and now to Proverbs this morning, I want us to keep in mind that the whole point of wisdom literature is to help us grow in the fear of Yahweh. It, it is to impart true wisdom to our lives. And I know many of you, 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 you love the book of Proverbs. It is a very powerful book. I would say most people enjoy the book of Proverbs. Even non-biblical Proverbs are generally regarded as helpful. They're instructive. You say, well, Dom, I'm not familiar with what a proverb is. What, what is a proverb? Well, it's just a short saying. It's a maxim. It's an adage that gives advice or expresses some sort of common truth. Proverbs are often very popular, they're pithy, they're practical. So practice makes what? 
Well, I had a coach who told me one time, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. You hear those kind of things and you think, hey, that's, that's helpful. That's memorable. It's simple. It's easily transferable. There are all kinds of proverbs. There's ancient proverbs. There's Chinese proverbs. There's rabbinical proverbs. But when we come to God's word, the book of Proverbs is more than just a collection of short, pithy sayings to help aid our memory and stimulate knowledge. The Proverbs do so much more. They do so much more than just providing some antidotes to help you live a more successful and productive life. You see, what makes the book of Proverbs in our Bible so special is that it tells us about God. It reveals his character and how we're to relate to him and to all of his creation. You see, the book of Proverbs, it it promises wisdom And that's why we see wisdom happen over and over and over again, 125 times in just 31 chapters. But the centerpiece, the starting point of wisdom comes in this, fear the Lord. I believe that the fear of Yahweh is one of the most important and pervasive topics in the book of Proverbs and all throughout Scripture. John MacArthur reminds us that the more you have imbibed the wisdom and revelation of God's character on the pages of Holy Scripture, the more glorious he becomes to you. The more you see his beauty, the more you will have an awe and a fear, and you will worship him. I think he's right on the money. The more that we know God, the more that we know his will for our life and act on that will, the more wisdom we will display. And so with that, let's pray and ask the Lord to unpack Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 for us. Oh, Father, it is true that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And so we come to your word with eager anticipation, with a recognition that we cannot understand, we cannot comprehend, we cannot respond, we cannot submit and be obedient to your word apart from your spirit's power working in us. And so, Lord, would you come and do that gracious work in our hearts, that we would hear and heed, that we would obey and we would love, and it would be for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's the main idea in Proverbs 1-7. Proverbs 1-7 summarizes the entire theme of the book of Proverbs, and it really gives us the key that unlocks the entire book. Proverbs 1-7 summarizes the theme of the book of Proverbs and gives us the key that unlocks the entire book. We didn't get a chance to work all the way through Job, and that's okay. But one of the things that we learned from Job at the outset was that he was a blameless and upright man, and it said that he was fearing God, continually fearing God and turning away from evil. And if anyone needed wisdom and understanding of who God is and what he was doing, it was Job under his trial. But as you move through Job, you get to chapter 28. And in Job chapter 28, Job asks this all-important question. And it is this in verse 12. He says, but where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? And then he repeats that rhetorical question in verse 20, but then he answers the question In verse 28, he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And when we think about wisdom literature, you've got the book of Job, you've got Proverbs, you've got Ecclesiastes. Job gives us wisdom to understand suffering in life. You get to Proverbs and Proverbs gives us the wisdom to understand what a successful life is. And then you get to Ecclesiastes, and we have wisdom to understand the significance of life. And we have to read all three books together. But right from the start in the book of Proverbs, we learn that the intent of this collection of sayings is for the purpose of making you wise. The book begins with the preamble. Look there in verse 1. Verse 1, we have the title of the book to the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. That is the title. And then verses two through six, we have the purpose of the book. And really there's two purposes. 
And you see them right there. One purpose is to give us moral skillfulness. The second purpose is to give us mental discernment. And so that first purpose there is developed in verses 2 and 3. It says, to know wisdom and discipline, to understand the sayings of understanding, to receive discipline that leads to insight, righteousness, justice, and an equity. Then after a parenthetical thought and exhortation in verse 5, the second purpose is developed there in verse 6. It says, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. And then you get to verse 7, and verse 7 really is the thesis of the entire book. And this is what it reads. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. And so our outline as we just move through this one verse is very simple. We'll look at the revelation. That's the fear of Yahweh. We'll look at the results. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. And then we'll look at the rejection. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. The revelation, what is it? How does God portray it? The results and the rejection. So let's begin here with the revelation of the fear of Yahweh. And probably the best place to start is to talk about what it is not. What is it not? Well, the fear of Yahweh is not merely respect. I think there's a lot of people, well-meaning people, who want to identify this as respect. And we would say, yes, it is respect, but it's more than that. And oftentimes, I think people gravitate to this idea of respect because they want to lighten this idea of fear. Fear doesn't make sense to them when it comes to our relationship with God. But the word here, yirah, it actually means fear. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to divorce this concept of fear of God because it doesn't sit well with us, because it doesn't make sense to us. We know that the Bible say what the Bible says, and the Bible says, fear God. Now, if your mind immediately goes to, and maybe it does, to a terrified child, kind of cowering in the corner, terrified of a cruel and abusive father, you have the wrong idea of what the fear of the Lord is. You see, someone who fears Yahweh is actually holy and happy. They know God. They delight in God. They desire to draw near to God. They don't distance themselves from Him. And so the fear of Yahweh includes respect, but it's not limited to that. Well, the fear of Yahweh is not the opposite of love. I think today's culture wants to try and divide God. They talk about his attributes like we can just cut him down the middle like he's a piece of cake. You can't do that. You got to take him as he is. And the reality is that we don't have to choose between the love of Yahweh and the fear of Yahweh. It's not team love versus team fear and you pick a side. Let's put team love in this corner. And team love is is always going to talk about God's mercy and his grace and his generosity and his benevolence. And then what about team fear over here? Team fear is always going to talk about God's righteousness and his justice and his judgments. It's a false dichotomy. You can't separate God that way. We've made contradistinctions where they don't actually exist. You see, it's our fathers, listen to this, it is his profound love that produces and purifies our fear. That's the wonder of the gospel. God's love and grace frees us from fear, and at the same time, it causes us to fear. We just sang the song by John Newton. Those words from Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Michael Reeves, he's got an excellent book. If you want to take this up and study it further, the book is called, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? I should have read that book in its entirety before I preached this sermon, but you can go and pick it up and you'll learn so much about what it is and what it isn't. But this is what he says about the gospel. He says, the gospel frees us from our crippling fears, giving us instead a most delightful, happy, and wonderful fear. 
And that's typically not the way people think about fear, but it is true when we think about biblical fear. So listen, the fear of Yahweh is more than respect and it's not opposed to God's love. And we could spend a lot of time talking about what it is not. But just so you have in your mind, the fear of Yahweh is not some sort of morbid, unhealthy, dysfunctional, or debilitating fear. In fact, it's not negative at all. It's all positive. You say, well, so what does the fear of Yahweh mean then? And before we even answer that, we have to talk about Yahweh himself. Before we understand what it means to fear him, we have to know who he has revealed himself to be. Yahweh is God's personal covenant name. It appears all throughout the Old Testament, but his name he revealed to Moses at the burning bush at Exodus chapter 3. Remember, Moses goes to him and says, if I'm going to go to your people, and if I'm going to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, who, who am I going to say sent me? Who, who, who's, who's telling me to go and deliver this message? And you remember God responds to Moses. He says, tell them, Ihyeh has sent me to you. The Hebrew word Ihyeh means I will be. That's God's name. It means that he is the one who he is and who will be. And that's the perfect name for the God of the universe. Because God, his existence depends on nothing and no one. He just is. He's the creator. He's the king. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's the one sitting on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6, where you have these magnificent and beautiful creatures around the throne, proclaiming with a loud voice, volleying back to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. That is who Yahweh is. There is no one like him. He is altogether different and holy. He is different in every way. That is Yahweh. And we have to start with who he is so that we understand how we respond to him. You see, once we know who he is, then we can have the proper response to who he is. And in the book of Proverbs, we encounter God's personal covenant name 87 times, and oftentimes it's attached to this concept of fear. Well, what happens when we receive God's revelation of himself and listen to his words of wisdom? Let me just let the Proverbs speak to us for a little bit. Because in Proverbs 2 and verse 5, we read this, you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. In Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of Yahweh is to hate evil. In 9, 10, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In 10, 27, the fear of Yahweh prolongs life. In 1426, in the fear of Yahweh, there is strong security and his children will have refuge. In 1427, the fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. In 1516, better is a little with the fear of Yahweh than great treasure in turmoil with it. In 1533, the fear of Yahweh is the discipline leading to wisdom. In 16.6, the fear of Yahweh is the one who turns away from evil. In 19.23, the fear of Yahweh leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, not visited by evil. And so look, just based on that small little sample size here in Proverbs, you can say that we should fear Yahweh. You know why? Because it's good for you. It is good for you to fear the Lord. In fact, Proverbs 22 says that very plainly in verse 4. The reward of humility, fear of Yahweh, is riches, glory, and life. And in Proverbs 23, we're encouraged in verse 17 to be zealous in the fear of Yahweh. And it says, always. You see, not all fear is bad fear. There's a wise philosopher, a very smart man by the name of Master Yoda. And you remember this line, he says, fear leads to anger. <laughs> anger leads to hate. 
Hate leads to suffering. But look, that's not the Bible's view. Yes, there is a bad fear. There's an unhealthy fear. But God actually blesses his children with fear for our benefit. Well, how do we go about fearing him? what, what, What does it really mean? And here's the most basic and simple definition that I can think of for the fear of the Lord. It simply means this. We know God relationally, and we respond to him appropriately. We know God relationally, and we respond to him appropriately. The truth is, when you read theologians and Bible scholars and pastors and commentators, they all come up with a different definition. So I'm not sure you can come up with a perfect definition. But they say things like the fear of Yahweh means to show the appropriate reverential awe and admiration and respect and wonder and trust and love and gratitude for who he is. And I think all those things are true. It's a mixture of all those things. But listen, our fear has to be in relation to who he is. Everything is motivated by our relationship to him. So it's not just our thinking and feeling about God, but it's our thinking and our feeling about him personally. The fear of Yahweh, it can't just be thinking correctly because the demons know lots of stuff about God, but they don't relate to him appropriately. I love what A.W. Tozer says about the fear of Yahweh. He says this, He says, I believe that the reverential fear of God mixed with love and fascination and astonishment and admiration and devotion is the most enjoyable state and the most satisfying emotion of the human soul. That's just a great definition. The fear of Yahweh is a love-motivated, joy-inspiring fear which produces in us humble, submissive, obedience. And you say, well, Pastor Dom, how how do I understand this idea of joy and fear? It still doesn't sit well with me. How, How do I understand this idea of love and fear? Because those seem to be on the opposite sides of the spectrum. But the Bible perfectly merges those. And I would say, you do understand that. You see, when I was about to get married. I remember watching my wife come down the aisle, and for some reason, I just started to shake. And I was terrified. Not because my wife was terrifying, but because the thought of becoming one flesh, the thought of marrying the one I love and being with her for the rest of my life, it caused in me emotion and fear and joy all together at once. Or maybe you watch that uh, YouTube clip. It's a beautiful clip. It's about a dad and his son. A soldier who was deployed, he comes and he visits his son in a Taekwondo studio. And his son is blindfolded. And he's sparring with his dad and he doesn't know it. And his dad is giving him instruction. And you can see the boy kind of like, hmm, But then his dad says his boy's name, Chip. And then the boy throws off his gloves and takes off his blindfold and sees his dad. And he's shaking. And he hugs him. And he's crying. And you say, why is he shaking and crying? Is it because he's terrified of his dad? No, because he loves his dad. And fear and love draws closer to God. It doesn't distance us from God. That's the picture that we have. Love promotes us to do whatever it takes to draw closer to God, and fear prevents us from doing anything that will distance us from him. So listen, the fear of Yahweh, what is it? It's a call to devotion. It's a call to awe and adoration and to worship. We want to be so overwhelmed by our triune God that the reality of who he is It dominates the way that we think and it controls us and it propels us to come closer to him. That's the revelation. What about the results? The fear of Yahweh is the beginning 
of knowledge. It's the beginning. Now, you know this. You and I, we had a beginning, right? We didn't create ourselves, but we actually had two beginnings. If you're a Christian, you had your birth, but you also had your rebirth. Lord willing, you're born again, which means that you were physically born, but then you had a spiritual death with Christ, died to sin, died to self, but then you were reborn spiritually. And all of that begins with the fear of the Lord. Fear is not an option. It's not something you learn later on when you become mature as a Christian. That's the starting point. I remember when I got first introduced to God. My first introduction to God was he took my grandpa. That was it. I just thought, huh, if there is a God, then he's the one that caused my grandpa to die. And I remember being very angry at God and upset at God. I didn't have the Bible. I didn't go to church. I didn't know anything about God. I just knew that he probably has the keys to life and death, and I don't like the way he's operating here. And then later on, my brother passed away in a motorcycle accident. And I thought to myself, well, I really don't like this God now because he took something that was so precious and valuable to me, my own brother. And so I lived uh, many years of my life as a young boy, mad, upset, bitter, angry. And then you fast forward, saying a prayer, being terrified of going to hell, but not terrified of God. And you say, well, what's the difference? Well, I didn't want judgment, but I still didn't want God. And so I said a prayer and I wanted to escape hell, but I didn't want to have a relationship with God. So I lived from junior high all the way through high school and my college years thinking I was a Christian when I really wasn't. And then many of you know, my mom came down with breast cancer and then I reverted back to being angry at God. I thought my mom had died and I pleaded with God, if you're real, if you're real, make yourself known to me, reveal yourself to me. And I didn't hear a mysterious voice. I didn't hear anything audible. I just heard in the quietness of my own heart, go read the word. I had no idea where to go, but I opened it to the middle and it was Proverbs. And so I started reading. And what I read, I learned real quickly that I am a fool. Because this is how a fool thinks, and a fool acts, and a fool speaks, and I am foolish. But then the contrast in Proverbs is what? Wisdom. And I began to read about wisdom and how wisdom acts and how wisdom thinks and what wisdom provides and what it promises. And I thought to myself, this is what I want. This is what my heart longs for. But you can't stop there. It's the starting point. Because wisdom is a pointer to who ultimately? To Jesus Christ, who is the epitome of wisdom, the personification of wisdom. He's the promise of wisdom. The new covenant promises that he himself will fear the Lord. When we read about Jesus, he's growing. He's maturing in stature and in wisdom. And so Jesus himself actually fears the Lord. He is what my heart longs for because he provides a full and comprehensive knowledge of God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father. And so, yes, wisdom has a starting point. But that starting point isn't that white marker and we stay there. We stay there because wisdom always, always is about the fear of the Lord. And we are to grow in the fear, but we don't outgrow the fear. Initially, it's what saves us. It's foundational, but it's also perpetual. And as we grow in our faith, we grow in fear. That's the way God intends it to be. You don't start and stop. You start and keep going in the fear of the Lord. Our fear then becomes the grounds, the guide, and the goal of a holy life. But not everyone believes that. And that's what we see in the next part of the verse, the rejection. It says, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, but look at the contrast here. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. 
Now, the Legacy Standard Bible, interestingly, it has a translation that says ignorant fools. All the other translations don't say that. It just says fools. And you say, well, why? Well, I don't know. So I had a, I had a message all the guys who worked on the Legacy Bible and say, well, what's going on here? Here's what I came up with. Well, this is just a different word for fool. There's kissel, there's nubal, and there's other words, but this is avil. This is someone who not only lacks sense, but is morally deficient and corrupt. He ignores God's moral commands, and he acts in opposition to God's sovereign rule. You see, in the Bible, a fool is not just someone who is uneducated or someone who is gullible or someone who is naive. Now, that's not the description of a fool. No, a fool is someone who there is no fear of God in their eyes. We read that in Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. That is the epitome of foolishness. No regard for authority, no regard for God's truth, no regard for creation, no regard for moral law. And so we hear and we see the fool try to reshape and reframe and give us their own version of the truth, which is all foolishness. But just look in the Bible real quickly at how it describes a fool. The fool hates knowledge. He's disgraced. He's disgraceful. He has loose lips. He doesn't store up knowledge. He lacks understanding. He's right in his own eyes. He proclaims folly. He spreads folly. He doesn't turn away from evil. He scoffs at guilt. He refuses correction. He doesn't delight in discernment. He is full of strife. He's contentious. He fails to obtain wisdom. He's arrogant. He repeats his folly. He trusts in his own heart, and he has no restraints. That's the description of a fool. And you say, well, what's at the heart of this foolishness? The heart of that foolishness is a hard heart. That's how you become a fool. You harden your heart to God and his word. Look at the contrast that's made in Proverbs 28, 14. It says, how blessed is the man who is always in dread. But here's the contrast. He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. You see, it is the hardening of the heart that darkens the mind. The hard heart makes the fool deceivable and deviant. Again, that's not to say that he's intellectually dumb. There are a lot of brilliant and smart people. I think of Dr. Grisanti, who will be with us um, just in a couple of weeks, I remember him talking about this guy that he would meet that had all of the Psalms memorized. And I thought, oh, how fantastic to have the Psalms memorized. And it's not just memorized, but it was memorized in Hebrew. And then he drops the bomb on us and says, and he wasn't even a Christian. Didn't even believe. See, it's not about your IQ, but it's about a heart that has been hardened. You say, well, why? Why is that? Because a hard heart prevents you from actually seeing God. A hard heart prevents you from actually enjoying God, delighting in God. You see, if wisdom arises from fear of the Lord, then the height of foolishness, the height of foolishness is to pretend that God, who is all-powerful and all-holy and sovereign, doesn't deserve your worship that he doesn't deserve your submission, that he doesn't deserve your allegiance. That right there is the height of folly. And here in Proverbs 1.7, the fool is one who not only rejects the fear of Yahweh, but it says he despises it. That word there, buzz, buzz. It's an emotionally charged word. So it's not just that the fool is unaware of God or unaware of what the Bible says. It's that they feel a strong contempt for what the Bible says. They get angry when the Bible is preached and proclaimed. So angry that they're willing to go put a note on a guy's door and says, if you keep preaching this, we're going to kill you. You say, well, what is the result of that kind of disdain for God and his word? Well, 
Verbal scorn. Do we hear that? Yes. Deriding of God. Both his word and his deeds. See, they demonstrate that they think little of God's wisdom and instruction, and it comes out in their lifestyle. God's word, you would agree with me, is precious. They don't view it as that. They view it as worthless. It is priceless. They view it as paltry. No value. Care less about what that book says. A perfect example of this is Esau. When you think back to Esau, that encounter in Genesis 25, the scripture says he despised his birthright and he traded it in for some Quaker oats. I'd rather have some stew. I don't need my birthrights. That there's the epitome of foolishness, devaluing what was precious. Proverbs 1.29 says, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of Yahweh. So listen, church, we need to understand that this is a choice. People choose to shut their ears and close their eyes because they'd rather not submit to the one whom they have to do. You say, well, Pastor Dom, why, why do you think that so many people despise wisdom and despise instruction? Well, what's at the heart of their rejecting the fear of the Lord? And the answer to that is simple. It's self. We are the problem. The fool is wise in his own eyes. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they're tempted to think that they know better than God. God said, here it is. It's all for you. Enjoy. And they said, huh? I think I know better. That one thing that you said not to have, I want that. And what happens? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And what does she do? She takes the fruit and she eats it and she gives it to her husband with her. And we see this pattern happen over and over again. A temptation to distrust God and his word, a disregard for his word, and then ultimately a determination to do what I want to do. Pastor Henry Allen Ironside, many of you know who he is. He wrote these prophetic words about a century ago. Listen to what he said. He said, there is no true knowledge apart from the fear of the Lord. All that pretends to be wisdom and ignores God is folly. The young man should bear this in mind when meeting the many pseudo-scientific theories now abroad. He said, philosophers and scholars have cast to the winds the fear of the Lord and ruled him out of his own creation. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools as a result abounding absurdities are readily accepted by the ignorant as science and true philosophy. The word science implies exact knowledge. But to call the wild guesses of evolutionist and infidel biologist science, he says that's word prostitution. Hypotheses, however original or erudite, are not science. There never has been and never will be a conflict between the Bible and science. The conflict comes between the Bible and unbelievers, vain theorizing, or between unscriptural religious notions and scientific facts. Those are powerful words that speak to today's cultural arrogance. Those who taunt that science has somehow supplanted the God of science. Let me just say one more word before moving on to some practical applications. I don't want to get in the corner that's just looking at the non-believer because I want to talk to the church and remind you that we sometimes despise God's word. You say, how do we do that? Oh, it's simple. It's just disobedience. Do you remember Nathan confronting David, King David? about his adultery, about his murder. Nathan says to David, why have you despised the word of Yahweh and done what is evil in his sight? 
Proverbs 13, 13, the one who despises the word will be in debt to it. You will reap what you sow if you think that you are above God's word. If you despise God's word, there are consequences. But the one who fears the commandments, God's promises, you will be rewarded. That's the revelation. That's the results, the rejection of the fear of Yahweh. But I want to close our time just thinking through some applications, implications of the text. You say, well, how can we grow in our fear? Pastor Dom, how can I grow in my fear of Yahweh? Three simple answers. The first is to hear the word of God. Hear the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of Christ. That's the truth of the New Testament. We see this in Romans 10, but that's the way it's always been. Turn in your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want to show you this just in brief here. In verse 10 of Deuteronomy 4, we read this. Remember the day you stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb, when Yahweh said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may cause them, listen to this, to hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on earth and that they may teach their children. From the get-go, God's desire was to reveal himself to us, that we would learn of him so that we would fear him. And then it wouldn't stop with us, but we would pass it on to our children and teach them the fear of the Lord. So application number one, you guys are knocking it out of the park. You're here. You're sitting under the word. We need to be under faithful Bible teaching, but not just on Sunday mornings. That's not enough. So that's why we do grace groups. That's why we do Bible studies. That's why we do retreats. We want to be in the word. That's why discipleship matters. The other reason why it matters is because we have precious children. And we live in a generation and a culture where God has been thrown out of the schools. Let's get the Ten Commandments out. Let's, let's redefine everything. Now more than ever do we have to be passing on the faith to our children. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 11. And look there at verse 18. You shall therefore place these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes, and you shall teach them to your sons, speaking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. Listen, the word of God has to be central in everything that we do. And so we read the word together, we sing the word together, we pray the word together, we memorize the word together. We need to rehearse the gospel over and over again. For everyone who becomes a member of our church, you have to go through that kind of maybe undifficult uh, one minute where you have to give the gospel to us. We want to make sure that you're able to understand and articulate the gospel. And I know it makes people feel a little uncomfortable, but listen, there is nothing more precious and valuable than the gospel which means we have to get it right. We have to get it right when we're preaching it to ourselves and preaching it to others. We need to teach ourselves and our children about God as the creator, that he is the only one. We need to teach that he has a holy standard. We need to teach that man is depraved and incredibly wicked. We need to teach about God's solution in sending his own son. We need to teach about Jesus being the perfect one, that he lived a perfect life of obedience, that he died a sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross. We need to teach about his triumphant resurrection. We need to teach about the conviction of sin, the repenting of sin, the repudiation of sin, and the turning away from sin. We need to teach about true humility, true submission. We need to teach about faith and forgiveness and atonement and reconciliation and justification and sanctification and future glorification. It's not just a systematic theology class. We need to teach people the word of God. We want our kids and our neighbors and our family to ask the same question that they asked Peter in Acts chapter 2. What must I do? What must I do in response to this? 
And you remember Peter's reply. Repent. And each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But in order for them to be pierced in the heart and ask the question, we have to teach the gospel. We have to proclaim the gospel. So we grow in our fear by hearing the word, but we also grow in our fear by seeing God, ourselves, and others rightly. We hear, we see God, ourselves, and others rightly. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, when we see God for who he truly is, then we will. We'll live with a deep sense of awe and reverence for his power, for his holiness, for his goodness. All of that, listen, gets distorted when we take our eyes off of God and put our eyes on ourselves and on other people. So Brother Sharif, he will shut up. He will stop preaching if he's only concerned about what man could do to me. But what did Jesus say? Don't fear him who has the power to kill the body, but fear him who has the power to kill both the body and soul in hell. I'm convinced that this brother's love for the Lord and love for people will compel him to keep preaching, whether it's there or somewhere else. You see, when our vision is skewed and we see ourselves at the center of the universe, then we fall into all sorts of sin. And you need to be aware of this, Christian, that Satan and your flesh and the world wants you to put yourself at the center. You say, Pastor Dom, how how do I know if I'm fearing man more than I'm fearing God? Now, let me just give you some things to think about, some questions to ask, some some self-examination questions. Do you compare yourself to others? Do you find yourself going along with the crowd, even when it goes against your own convictions? Do you constantly give in to peer pressure? That is the fear of man. Do you overcommit? Do you you feel like you can never say no because so many people are dependent on you? Are you a people pleaser? Do you always feel like you need to fix problems and be the solution? That is the fear of man. Are you criticized? Are you crushed by criticism? Are you you worried about what everyone thinks of you? Do you find yourself getting overly embarrassed about who you are or what you look like or who you're related to? If you care more about people's opinions, that is the fear of man. Are you more concerned about your appearance? How many friends you have on Facebook? How many little hearts you get on Instagram? How many followers you have on Twitter? Do you long for more and more attention? Are you constantly on the hunt for compliments? That is the fear of man. Listen, do you obsess about your body? Do you have a preoccupation with your health and your diet and your weight and your fitness regimen? Do you spend unhealthy amounts of time on self-care and your hair and your makeup and your skin and your outfits? Are you puffed up when people praise you for how you look? That is an indication that you probably fear man. And you say, well, what's the remedy for all that? It's real simple. Fear God instead. Fear what God thinks of you, not what man thinks of you. Steve Lawson says this, the more you grow in the fear of God, you automatically decrease in the fear of man. Why? Because the greater fear displaces the lesser fear. And so we grow in our fear of Yahweh by hearing his word, seeing him for who he is, ourselves rightly, and finally, by obeying. Really, do we grow in fear by obeying? And the answer to that is yes. The fear of Yahweh isn't just about an attitude of the heart and of your mind, but it's about accompanying all that with your will. And so as we obey, as we become doers of the word, not just merely hearers, we grow in our fear of Yahweh. Do you fear the Lord? Do you truly, genuinely fear him? Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? You'll obey me. You'll keep my commandments. How beautiful that the more that we keep his commandments, 
the more our fear grows. Because as we keep the commandments, we recognize that is for my good. That God does love me. That's why he's given me his word. That God says, don't go that way. Don't do that thing because he loves me and he wants to bless me with more of him. And so our fear feeds obedience and our obedience feeds more healthy fear. Listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, you need to grow in your fear of the Lord. If you are a non-Christian, I beg you to consider that you need to fear the Lord. The fear for a non-Christian is much different than the fear of a Christian. God promises that he will come back one day and he will judge everyone on the basis of what you've done with Jesus Christ. And the worst thing you can do is fall into the hands of an angry God who is an all-consuming fire. So while you have a day, and while it is today, the Bible says the day is the day of salvation. Turn to him in faith and repentance and see that the fear of God is not just going to provide you with wisdom, but it's going to give you God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a remarkable verse of Scripture. And to think that this is just the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, Lord, prevent us from ever despising your word, despising who you are, despising what you've revealed yourself to be. Father, the proper response, the most fitting response to your person, the one who creates and upholds and blesses and speaks and acts and judges is to fear you, to fear all of you, not parts of you, not not gravitating to the parts that we like, but to fear you as you've been revealed in the scripture. And Lord, we are confident that as we fear you and as we seek your glory and as we sanctify your name, we hollow your name and as we serve you faithfully, you will satisfy us forever. And so, Lord, with the psalmist, we pray, teach me your way, O Yahweh, and I will walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.